0: Of prayer. Father, we thank you again for the grace that you have extended to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that the Holy Spirit, whom he has sent, would illuminate hearts to the record of your dealings in history. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to go through the events of the um, destruction of the kingdom, the, the separation, the great rift that happened. This is one who. This this is a phase of Israel's history that used to be well known, but since we've had a generation and a half of New Testament preaching and nothing out of the Old Testament, largely, uh, I think a lot of Christians fail to understand or are acquainted with the event. Leave alone, fail to understand it, Um, and so. As we move down through these events, um, we want to start looking at uh, what happened in this at this period in history. So, I'm going to put some background maps here on the on the overhead transparency here on the overhead projector, and uh, want to look at um, at some basic ge- terrain and um, geographic breakdown of the nation. One of the things that um, concerns a lot of uh, scholars is that the nation was scattered, very much so. We get the image from the scriptures that this was a, a country that was all small, and nice, and uh, didn't have any kind of um, um, any kind of diversity ge- geographically. Uh, looking at this map base. And I can see I must have left my pencils over here. Um, If you look at that map base, I must have left them back there. Excuse me just a minute. Um, Obviously, certain things hit your eye from that map, and there are certain large-scale boundaries in the land. Uh, One of them, of course is the land has this eastern boundary. It's a rift valley, quite deep, quite pronounced, and it's a natural eastern boundary for Israel. Um, bounded by the Sea of Galilee in the north, Dead Sea in the south. Uh, sometime, when we ha- if we have time, I'll bring in some slides so you can get an idea of some of that terrain. Then we have the western boundary southern boundary of the wilderness, and the northern boundary up here in Lebanon. Now what happened as the tribes went into the land was that they spread out a whole, there's a whole set of stories about these tribes. And the nuances of those stories are embedded in these events. Uh, For example, a set of notes I just handed out has behind it Um, a whole nuance about the tribe of Dan. And because we're not studying verse by verse, per se, on Thursday nights, I don't have time in this series to go into why Dan figures so prominently in some of these narratives. Um, But you'll notice on this map that there's a little splinter group up here in the north. And that plays a very big role in in Israel's history and certain points in time. But just get familiar with some basics on this map. and, And you'll see them in your biblical chart, but it won't make sense to you some of the narrative that we're going to study if you don't have the map. In the south, you have Judah. Just to the north of Judah's boundary is Benjamin. So those are two key tribes. Those are two anchor tribes that you want to, kind of in your head, in your mind's eye, Realized Judah in the south. On the north side of Judah is Benjamin, and then uh, these are the other tribes scattered all over the place. What happened in David's day? David, um, David, his reign had some peculiar features to it, and we're going to cover those tonight a little bit. Um, But what David did is he expanded that tribal area out internationally so that as king of Judah, he reigned in this area. By the way, that previous map that I showed, I must comment on this. Um, This is a very optimistic map (laughs) in the sense that this map presupposes that the tribes conquered the area. This map depicts the tribal areas um, if they could control it. And they never controlled it. And you can see that even in David's day, on the next chart, look how big Judah is here. And on the next chart, with David as king conquering all that he conquered, uh, look at Judah. See how small it is? And so we have the the dark blue Judah After David assumed the throne, there was a progression, and this is something very important, what's going to happen tonight. David did not assume the throne over all the nation at once. He began to reign in his own tribe, Judah. Then he began to uh, have overtures from the other tribes, and then we have David's realm. This hashed blue lines represent David's uh, realm of, of, of rule over the other tribes, who asked him to be their king. And then David conquered and had zones of political power and influence over all the vertical hatched area. So David's kingdom started with his own tribe, moved out to the other tribes, and then he had international relations and dominations with the others. Now, what's going to happen tonight, what we're witnessing is the fracturing of that kingdom. And the marks of this fracture are left in the pages of Scripture all the way down to the corridors of time. This is what's going to happen. The nation is going to split. And from this point on, the word Israel doesn't mean what it used to mean. Okay? So when we first started, Israel was a man's name. It's another alternate name of Jacob. Then we think of Israel as Israel the nation. But be careful, because as you go into the Old Testament text, now, starting tonight, Israel doesn't mean the whole nation. Israel means the ten tribes that broke away from David. And Judah is a technical term that refers both to Judah and to Benjamin. So now the nation is known by the north and the south. And those are the two terms. So for tonight's uh, scoping, uh, just looking at the big picture, uh, visualize the boundary now. There's Jerusalem. It wasn't just but 20 miles north of Jerusalem, or less than that, 15, 10 or 15 miles that that boundary happened. Jude, Notice also in the chart, uh, if you look carefully, here's Jerusalem, and you'll see that terrain-wise, and geographically, Jerusalem is pretty centered. It's up on the north boundary, and it's pretty centered as far as access from the, from the tribes to the north. All right, that's just general geography and terrain. What we want to study tonight is the strange set of events that happened that led to this split. Um, Anything that happened to the nation, we know what? Let's go review. God is the king, really the king of Israel. Where did God lay out his policies as king? Where did he lay out what his rules were for his kingdom? It was Mount Sinai. So the law controlled God's will for the nation. Okay, now another question. Besides God's will for the nation in a direct sense, in a legislative sense, in a policy sense, where do we get information on God's election and destiny of the nation? We don't go to Sinai so much as we go to Abraham. So you have these covenants, the Abrahamic covenant that outlines and specifies the role of the Hebrew in history, and then you come down to the Mosaic Law Code that says you shall do this, you shall not do this, you shall do this, your national policy in economics is this, your national policy in bank loans is this, your national policy in real estate is this, your national policy on taxes and taxation is this, etc., 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 one area after another. Okay, <clears throat> now, tonight, if you'll turn on page 19 of the notes, Um, Just follow me for uh, a a few paragraphs here, and then we'll get into the text. We're going through a down cycle now in Israel's history. And one of the lessons to learn from this framework series on Thursday is, as I've said from the beginning, learn to catch hold of the big, powerful ideas of Scripture. We're going to go through a lot of the details, but hang on to some of the big ideas. Now, one of the big ideas is that you can study history and analyze it. When you learn um, a history course in school or college, Generally speaking, the the brief that you get in the classroom is that history began when history was written, written when you had historians studying history. And the first people to study history, you are told in the classroom, were the Greeks, Herodotus, Thucydides, and so on. That's where history writing, according to the classroom, originally began. But biblically, we have to disagree with that. We say that History writing, real history analysis began with the prophets. And remember we said the Jewish Bible, Old Testament, is divided into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the book of Joshua is the first prophetic book, first book that is considered to be part of the prophets. So now look at what we've done on Thursday nights. We've studied the events of of Joshua, the events of Judges, Samuel, and now we're in Kings. All these are prophetic books. They're all about history. Now, why do you suppose... And look at the dates. I mean, we're talking 1,000 B.C. Thucydides and, and uh, Herodotus and the, the people that you learn about in class classroom, they're not living until the 4th century. So how do you explain the fact that 6 to 7 to 8 to 10 centuries earlier than the Greeks... The Hebrews were already writing history. What motivated them to write history? And here's a major idea. This is why history doesn't appeal to the average student. Because there's no goal in it. What's the goal? What are you trying to do? I mean, it's hard stuff to do. Why, Why bother with it? Well, why did the prophets bother with it? Think about it for a minute. What was the motivation of the prophets to write Samuel and Kings and Joshua and Judges? Why did they bother with it at all on the human level? Anybody want to venture a guess here as far as what have we learned preceded this period? God made what with a nation? He made covenants. Remember we said, what does a contract do? A contract specifies Behavior. It, it says that between party A and party B, there's going to be a relationship. And why do we, inco- what do we usually write in contracts? We, we say somebody broke the contract. What do we mean when someone breaks the contract? They promised a certain behavior and they didn't come through on it. So there's always a monitoring of a contract. There's always a evidence of whether there was conformity to the contract or violation of the contract. So, in the Bible, the prophets were writing to substantiate that God adhered to his terms of the contract and man departed from his terms in the contract. It's an indictment. And it's also not just an indictment, it's not just to point man's sin, but it's also to show God and his works on behalf of his people. So, history writing has a powerful motive in the Bible. Now, the secular teacher has cut off the limb in which they're sitting in the tree. Because once you secularize history, and you say, well, we have to be religiously neutral, you've just eliminated the whole basis for studying it in the first place. Then you turn around and wonder why nobody's motivated to learn it. Well, why should they? You haven't given them a big enough reason history in the scriptures is his story. So now as we go into this history, we want to remember we're looking for things in this history. It's this not just, you know, burping out 1215 different uh, facts about Israel. These are carefully selected facts about this point and this point and this point by men who were led by the Holy Spirit. Men who had other sources You'll note if you've been reading Kings, you'll see this phrase, something like, and what other were the Acts of Solomon? Are not they not written in the Chronicles of the Kings? Now, that's not talking about the Chronicles. That's just talking about whatever these source materials were that the prophets had. So, we know they had access to royal diaries. They had access to documents that have long since disappeared. So, the question when you read Kings and Samuel and Joshua and Judges is always ask yourself, of all the thousands of events that could have been recorded, why do you suppose that the prophetic schools that wrote this text, why did they say, we want to include this event? And, and you'll see that there's a, there's, they have a reason behind all that. There's a reason of selection. We've already studied the origin of civilization under Nimrod, and we saw it secularized, we saw it paganized. God set up the civilization. Civilization as we know it began with all believers. Just like the Millennial Kingdom will one day again begin a new civilization with all believers. And like our civilization will end with both believers and unbelievers, the Millennial Kingdom will end with both believers and unbelievers. It's the same cycle, repeated and repeated. The historians want to explain these cycles in terms of economics, in terms of geography, in terms of sociology. There's always these things. Now, there are, those things exist. But what I point out is that the Bible doesn't use those things to explain history. The ultimate explanation of history is the hand of God. God does it. And that's what they're looking for. The prophetic writer's peel apart all the data of history and they say, there's the work of God in a mighty way. We want to record that. We, ha- we have to learn a lesson here. So that's the selecting device and that's how we, biblically speaking, that's our whole view of history. That's the way a Bible-believing Christian should view history. And you see, it goes back to presuppositions, what we started this whole thing with two and a half years ago. It starts off with your presuppositions. And once you lock in to the scriptures, you find yourself in total disagreement at the most profound level with the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world refuses to agree with us that the ultimate cause of history is the triune God of scripture. There's a, there's a major, dis- major collision right there. So our history cannot look like their history. We necessarily are writing two different stories grounded on two different presuppositions with two different kinds of authority. Well, we want to see tonight as we come to the first event we're going to study of three is the rejection of the Davidic dynasty. Now, let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and review something about the Davidic dynasty. Remember, God calls David to replace Saul. And in the Davidic covenant, David is promised certain things. Verse sixteen of Second Samuel Seven. Second Samuel Seven is the word from God concerning the destiny of the house of Israel. Destiny of the king. And in that covenant contract, verse 17, verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Notice forever, forever, forever. So what's the major idea behind... 2 Samuel 7 and the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant promises that there will always be a kingdom of David and there will be a descendant of David in control. So David's genes, physically descendant from David, must always reign in history. This is something that God started. Now Solomon... An individual who followed David did not follow his father, so we've studied that. If you go back up a few verses, verses 12, 13, and 14 concern Solomon and ultimately all the other descendants of David. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom, verse 12. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me, and when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. There will be discipline and chastisement for this king. But, God says, and there's that word we looked at again and again, remember, loving, kindness, kezid, Hebrew word, so let's remember that one. Whenever you have covenants, you'll see this word lurking somewhere in the text. Kezid. That means loving kindness. It means a love that is anchored to a covenantal agreement. My my loving kindness or my covenant love shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed from before you. So, what is verse 15 promising? Verse 15 is saying that the sons of David will be disciplined for their sin, but the house of David the lineage of David shall go on forever. What do you suppose this means as far as Israel's history is concerned? Let's try to draw some conclusions without studying anything else. If God really means what he says here, then it means that even today there's a son of David qualified for the throne. Well, we know who he is. Does this connect why the New Testament Gospels begin with what? The genealogies. Don't begin with a Christmas story. They begin with the genealogies, what Matthew does. And that is to show continuity with what? That God is a God who keeps his word. Da- uh, Jesus has got to have the genes of David, or he's not qualified to reign. Got to happen. So Joseph and Mary are both related to David and that's a whole other story when we get into the New Testament but that has to be because if that isn't true then the whole Davidic covenant goes down the drain and the reason is is because the lineage is lost if Jesus isn't the son of David nobody else can be because nobody knows the lineage I mean God knows the lineage but the records are all lost who's the son of David today only one Hebrew tribe exists today in sort of a way and that's the Levites. Everybody with Levi or Cohen belongs to that tribe or is named from that tribe. But other than that, the identities are all lost. Okay, so 2 Samuel 7 controls what's now going to happen. Now there's another passage that goes further back. Um, Let's turn all the way back to Deuteronomy 28. Because embedded in the Sinaitic law code, and we'll see a lot of this, are the blessings and the cursings. It's always interesting. Um, We have historically in the Christian faith uh, a, a debate over between what we now call covenant theologians and dispensationalists. And the covenant theologians are the guys that are always trying to make the church the greater Israel. They're always trying to identify the church with Israel. The problem with that is they always love to take the blessings of Israel onto the church, but they never pay attention to the cursings. Now, here's the blessings and the cursings. and we, We've gone over them a little bit before. But I want, again, you just to refresh your mind about some of the content of these blessings and cursings. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy 28, The Lord will open for you His good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season, to bless the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. So, here we have economic prosperity. The Lord shall make you head and not the tail, and you shall only be above, and you shall not be underneath if you'll listen to the commandments. This is military supremacy. And so on. Now, if you um, look further down in the cursings, now God says, verse 23, the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, the earth which is under you iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way, but you will flee seven ways before them. So here we have the blessings and the cursings upon the nation. Okay. Are these promises? Yes. These are promises. What, therefore, do you suppose the prophets who are writing Samuel and Kings are watching? See? They're tracking the role of the covenant. So all through Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, listen for that theme. The prophets are investigating. They're bearing record to. Is God ruling the way He said He was going to rule? Okay. Now we come to the chapter where it all happened. 1 Kings uh, chapter 11. So if you turn over to that passage, this is one of those central Old Testament passages. So far, we have studied key events with key chapters. Obviously, creation, Genesis 1 and 2. The fall, Genesis 3. The flood, Genesis 6, 7, and 8. We studied the call of Abraham, Genesis 12. We studied the law code, Exodus 20. We studied the invasion of the land, basically the book of Judges. We studied the rise and ascendancy of David, the king uh, he's picked out in 1 Samuel 17. He's, he becomes to reign in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 7, he becomes the covenant ruler. Uh, We studied Solomon in 1 Kings 4, a description of his reign, and now here's 1 Kings 11 and 12. This is a central passage. Included also, and I forgot this, remember we spent time on 1 Samuel 8, because 1 Samuel 8 was a prophetic analysis of the monarchy. It could still be, by the way, an analysis of centralized power. It's an eloquent statement about limited government. 1 Samuel 8. Okay. Let's look at what's happening now um, in Kings. And there's a mistake in your notes on page 20. It shouldn't be second in the first paragraph, next to the last sentence. It's not Second Kings. It's First Kings 11. In First Kings, let's look at the text now, because this is the setup for what happened. King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh the Moabite, the Ammonite, the Edomite, the Sidonite, the Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. What has happened, besides collecting his harem, is he's collecting unbelief as he's collecting his harem. And inside marriage, you have a certain, you have to have a certain common ground. The question is, what values set up the common ground? Of course, young people never think of this. They just run off and get married. And then later, they, oh, gee, did I marry an unbeliever? And so they, you always hear these sad, sad stories by the dozen about somebody who let their emotions lead their common sense and wind up in a mist mess, which is a mixed marriage which God forbids. Be not unequally yoked. So, this is a key in marriage because the common ground is either going to be biblical principles and the Word of God, or is not going to be the Word of God. And this is, we can see right here with Solomon, wisest man on earth when entered into these marriages And every one, first this lady was uh, after the god of the Moabites, this one was the god of the Edomites, this god was something else. I mean, he collected a menagerie. Not only did he have uh, women coming out, he had the gods and the goddesses all over. What he's got is one big ecumenical religion going on here. All mixed up. And it destroyed the country. Absolutely destroyed the nation. So what he thought was a customary way kings should act, destroyed the country that he was called to reign. Now, one of the reasons he did this, and it's clear um, that in the ensuing politics, that this was behind it, is the need to secure the peace of Israel. He thought And I want to note this because in the notes we handed out for next week, we're going to deal with a man who repeated the same mistake and doomed the northern kingdom to horrible suffering. Solomon did these marriages because he thought it would bring security. His answer to the problem of maintaining the prosperity of his nation was to interlock with treaties with other powers, And in that day and age, women were used in the royal families as sort of hostages. So, if he wanted to make sure, Pharaoh wanted to make sure that, uh, say, Solomon uh, didn't invade Egypt, uh, or vice versa, uh, then he uh, gave Solomon his daughter. And uh, first of all, she probably was an intelligence agent, passing news and, and all kinds of stuff to her dad. So right away, he's compromised his intel and the second thing is that she acted as a hostage so that if, uh, if uh, Solomon decided that maybe the Pharaoh was out of line, he had the Pharaoh's daughter there. So you can see these things worked out for, uh, on a human scale. It was a so-called wise thing to do. The problem with this is, who is the final king of Israel? Israel wasn't supposed to be like the other nations, right? Remember, why did God even have Israel? didn't have to. had plenty of other countries. Why did He even call Israel into existence? To be a nation that would be set apart for His purposes, through whom He could reveal His character, His workings, His destinies. So, the security belonged in the hands of God. God was the security. But Solomon thought that man was the security. So he came up with these gimmicks. And the entire history of the nation is unfortunately going to track with this business. From now on, we're going to see one human gimmick after another that these brilliant men, these leaders, these managers conceived of to secure themselves and their country. And the whole It just totally reverses everything. And in verse 9, of First Kings 19, you have how the Lord is intensely angry about this. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, who had appeared to him twice. What do you suppose at the end of verse 9 it has that clause in there? Who appeared to him twice? You know, it's because you know, God's saying, look Solomon, you know, I didn't remote control this thing. You and I had a face-to-face, the- there was a theophany. There was an appearance of God. I appeared to you twice. What is your problem, fellow? I mean, you have seen my glory. Most people never get to see that in this life. You have. You've seen it twice. So there's no excuse for you thinking that Pharaoh is bigger than I am. Or Pharaoh represents a threat. Or if you can't trust me to take care of Pharaoh. So he commanded him concerning this thing goes on to say, they should not go after other gods. Keep in mind, going after other gods has a political note to it. The reason you go after other gods is to share the values of the other people. Gods represent values. Idolatry is actually submitting or creating an ultimate value for yourself. Nimrod did that. Remember that phrase we went across? Let us make a name for ourselves. And then God answers Nimrod by calling Abraham, I will make the name. I will make the name, not man. Now, verse 11 prophesies the rupture of the kingdom. I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. So now we have set in motion the suffering that Solomon is going to bring upon his people. They're going to know the horrors of civil war. Thousands are going to die because of this gimmick business. And in the rest of chapter 11, three men are depicted here. Now watch the story. Keep in mind, pretend you're the historical analyst now. You're analyzing certain historic events and you're picking these out to show something. First of all, verses 14, down to the end of verse 22. The Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. Let's look at the map now. Where's Edom? Right there. southeast corner of the map. So right now, right on the boundary, we've got a problem. What was Solomon's problem? He wanted international security. We'll see how much security he gets. It gives you history in verse 15, going back a generation to David's father. And these are just sort of loose ends that were, were floating around in the flotsam and jitsam of history. Verse 17 records the fact that Hadad fled to, of all places, Egypt. Notice the role that Egypt is going to play in all this. He and the Edomites of his father's servants, while Hadad was a young boy, they arose from Midian, they came to Paran, and so forth, and they went down to Egypt. Verse 19, Hadad found great favor before Pharaoh, so he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Tephenes, the queen. The sister of Tephenes bore his son. Ah, now in verse 21, when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers, and Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, he said to Pharaoh, Send me away, I may go to my country. But And so, so, number one, now we have a hostile power who has a grudge against the house of David, now located on the boundary. Verses 23, 24, and 25. Notice how each of these sections begin. Notice how verse 14 begins. Who raises up the adversary? The Lord raises up the ad- This is not, ooh, gee, we've got a political hot potato here. It just happened. Just saw it on the news last night. This is all economics. No, it isn't. God is raising it up. Ask a bigger question now. Why is God raising it up? What have we already prepared now? What do we say was happening in 2 Samuel 7? When he disobeys, how is he going to be chastened? He's going to be chastened with the hands of men. So here you have these men watching the news, looking at the nations, and saying the second Samuel 7 clause has got to co- happen and therefore that gives us a tool to interpret the news. So this is the interpretation. Verse 23 God raised up another adversary. Reason the son of a who fled from his lord king of Zobah. Verse 25 He was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon with evil that Hadad did. And he abhorred Israel and he reigned over Aram. Aram is what is called Syria. Israel, from this point on, has always had a problem with Syria. They still have a problem with Syria. I mean, just this month, we've got the Syrians massing armies along the Golan Heights again. I mean, this, go, this has been going on all my life. I can remember as a boy. I can remember listening and seeing the artillery 1950s blasting away at all the Jewish settlements in northern Israel. This goes on and on and on. So here it here it is. But who raised up Syria? And why? Verse 23. But of all the three men, the key guy here is in verse 26. Verse 26 and following now, this is the section that spells the background for the rupture. So, let's pay attention. We're now going to study a, a man by the name of Jeroboam. The two, there's going to be two characters that dominate this historical moment. Two men in the face-off. In the south, Rehoboam. In the north, Jeroboam. Actually, he's called Jeroboam the first because there's two Jeroboamers. But these are the men that will now decide the destiny of the country. Jeroboam, an Ephraimite, son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zerah, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. Verse 26, if you just stop there, you would expect verse 27 to tell you how he rebelled. And you're sort of miss. I know uh, the times I've read this, you kind of, you say, huh? Verse 27 follows, well, how does verse 27, 28, 29 follow verse 26? Well, it's because the entire section from verse 27 all the way to the end of the chapter expands how he rebelled against the king. So don't think that this is just sequential. It's not that verse 27, 28 initially are going to tell us about the rebellion. They set up for it. This was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Now, this doesn't sound like a reason, because Solomon built Nilo, closed up the breach of the city of his father David. Well, what is that got to be with the reason why he rebelled against the king? The, the way you have to understand this is that in verse 27, that first clause, this was the reason why he rebelled against the king, says, st- uh, let me tell you, Verse 27b is the first step. 28 is the second step. 29 is the third step. So visualize all the other as pieces in this puzzle. The man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior. It came that Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem and so on. In other words, Jeroboam had been absorbed into the administration of the king. Okay? Um, To give you a, a... a feeling, of, well, no, I'll wait until we get to him down to Egypt first. So here he is, he's in the administration, in verse 28. What was the administration, by the way, doing? The administration was administrative districts all over the land. Eleven, I won't, you can guess which tribe was admitted, eleven of the twelve tribes, once a month, it was sequential throughout, There was 11 tribes and a a mixed match over there in Transjordania. And Solomon expected every month that one of these 12 groups would pay him with labor, men, women, food, sheep, oxen. That's where all his tribute came from. So one month out of every year, one of these tribes was pretty stressed. Because they had to feed this mess going on in Jerusalem. Now, the word about centralized government, they always call it Robin Hood government because Robin Hood government steals from, the rich to pay, uh, steals from the rich to pay the poor, and then finally Robin Hood steals from both rich and poor to pay Robin Hood. And this is what Solomon finally did. And embedded in this administration was Jeroboam. So he, Jeroboam is intimate to the administration. That's crucial for what he's going to pull off. Verse 29, he's walking down the road one day, and lo and behold, here comes this prophet, Ahijah. And Ahijah took up the new cloak that was on him, and he tore it in twelve pieces. And he said, these guys you know, had really powerful sermons, good audiovisual materials. He tore up his coat in twelve pieces, and he said, take for yourself twelve pieces. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel. I'm going to tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes." But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, the city which I have chosen for all the tribe. Why is verse thirty two in there? Let's think. Why, in the middle of this cursing, this announcement of destruction, is it cushioned with verse thirty-two? Second Samuel seven has got to come to pass. The kingdom of David will not be destroyed. It will suffer, but it will not be destroyed. And then he goes on in verse 33 with a litany of what's going on. In um, verse 34, 35, gives you a time prediction. It says to Jeroboam, I'm not going to take it out of Solomon's hand. I'll take it out of his son's hand. Verse 36. And verse 37, I will take you and you shall reign over whatever you desire and you shall be king over Israel. It will be... Now look at verse 38. Watch the language carefully. This figures prominently in what's going to happen. There's a little two-letter word there. If. Same thing that he gave Saul. It will be if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways. And by the way, where is he going to listen? Let's think about this. Listen. Ahijah's not going to be there to give him a 24-hour teaching. Where is he going to listen to what God has commanded? By going back to the Torah. The guy is supposed to study the Scriptures. What is the king in Deuteronomy 17 supposed to do every day of his life? Meditate in the law. So, he says to Jeroboam, if you listen, if you study the Scriptures every day and pattern your administration after the principles that I'm telling you in the Word of God, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always. Solomon sought, therefore, to put Jeroboam to death. So, obviously, word of this whole prophecy got out. Solomon, instead of respecting the prophecy as a word from God, to said, okay, I'm going to solve that problem. You see, once you get in a habit, as a Christian, we'll say this later, once we get in a habit that we're going to solve our problems our way, and we're going to rely on our devices, and we're going to solve it with our brains, that one of these things leads to another. And it just keeps on escalating. Until the Lord finally knocks you flat in your right back. So here he is. He's already decided he's going to solve the international security problem by intermarriage. Now in verse 40, he has clear evidence that God has disapproved of him so profoundly that he's calling into existence a competitor. So he tries to knock off the competitor. That little verse, in verse 40, shows you that Solomon, by this time, has become a carnal madman. He is a man who was determined to have his own way, period, come hell or high water. It's going to be done his way. If he has to send assassination teams out, I don't care whether God called this guy, I'm going to take him out. In other words, I am so great that I am going to thwart the plan of God. You see the friction that's developing here? This is why the Old Testament is so neat. These stories show us our sin. And they show it in such graphical, easy-to-see ways, because we can easily identify with this, that that's the benefit uh, to me of all these stories. Now, verse 41 is one of those verses that you'll see repeated in the Old Testament text. And that's why I say to you, don't think when you read Kings and Samuel, you're reading the history of Israel. The history of Israel has never been written. What we're reading is an abbreviated history of Israel by prophetic analysts who are merely taking the high points to show us what God's, how God's working. Now Solomon dies, and in his, uh, in his place rises this, this character, Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam will go down in history as probably one of the most stupid individuals that ever sat on the throne of Judah. This man couldn't help but make stupid decisions almost every day of his life. All it took was two or three days, and he totally destroyed everything his dad had built up. Amazing. This is one of these guys that I once heard an investment counselor say, speaking of another person who had said, go into this stock, go into this mutual fund. He was wrong all the time. And, And the commenters were saying, no, a very useful person. He really is. Because he has negative genius." All you have to do is do exactly opposite to what he does, and you win. Because he's consistently wrong. So if he's consistently wrong, that's good. I mean, at least you know where where things are going. So here's Rehoboam. He goes to Shechem, for all Israel had come to make him king. So let's go back to the map and see what happened here. Shechem is... Just north of Jerusalem, and this particular map obviously it doesn't have it, but it's, it's north of Jerusalem. It's up in the territory that's more central. It's out of Judah, tribe. Now we have a conference called When Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard, for he was living in Egypt. See how Egypt plays the theme here? And by the way, notice this for what's going to happen next week. And uh, they come to an appeal. Notice in verse 3, Jeroboam arises with all the assembly of Israel. Now, when it says Israel in verse 3, what is meant by that noun, Israel? It means the ten tribes are coming. Okay? Not the nation, just the ten tribes. Judah is not coming and making this complaint. It's the ten tribes that are coming and making the complaint. Your Father made our yoke hard, now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your Father and His heavy yoke which He put on us, and we will serve you. So He calls a conference. This is a classic instance of, of mismanagement. Watch, watch the text. Because obviously the prophets were intimate to these conferences. Maybe they attended the conferences. Some of the elders may have, after the conference was over, gone out and shared this information with the prophets. But here you have an examination of the inner consuls of political power. Here is sort of an inner sanctum of decision-making. King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon, saying, how do you counsel me to answer these people? Then they spoke to him said, if you will be a servant to this people today, you will serve them. You will grant them their petition. Speak good words. They'll be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders which had given him and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served with him. Now, here you see something that we have seen in our own country again and again. People ride into public office, and who do they bring with them? And it's kind of understandable. It's their political cronies. It's the people they grew up with. And there's a trust and a bond between them, so you can understand why they bring these people. The problem with that kind of thing is that the cronies don't understand the office any more than the guy that's going into the office. You need people who have the wisdom of experience. And so, these young guys thought they were hotshots, and we'll see how, what hotshots they were. So he said to them, What counsel do you give that we may answer these people? Lighten the yoke which your Father put on us. And the young man grew up with him, spoke, saying, Thus you will say to this people, Your Father made your yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us. But you shall speak to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions." What a great thing when a nation is, is rocking under oppression, economic taxation, that they're exhausted. These people are exhausted. They've built the nation, and this is the reward they get by a young guy that assumes public office with a bunch of his young cronies and decides he's going to show himself. I'm the big man now. Hebrew scholars have argued, in fact, about the last clause in verse 10. Nobody really knows how to translate that, but it could refer to a very obscene remark, because in the Hebrew, what it says, my little is bigger than my father's loins. And I leave it to your imagination what that possibly could refer to. And this is his answer to the people who are suffering. It's not only insulin, stupid, but it is obviously uh, hateful, and it shows total, uh, total lack of fellowship with the Lord, total lack of sensitivity to people, uh, and just generally obnoxious. And I've caught it's no, it's no guess what's going to happen. So in verse 12 and 13, Jeroboam comes with the, comes with the people. They come back to him. The king verse 15 did not listen to the people. And what do you have cushioned right in the middle of verse 15? Remember, this is a prophetic analysis of what's going on here. There's a little phrase that says, it was a turn from the Lord, literally. In other words, who is still sovereign? In spite of the chaos, and you know, you're sitting here, oh man, we just blew it, the whole thing's out of control. From the human point of view, it is out of control. That's just the point, because you had a group of people who decided they were going to maintain control. And it's precisely the debate over who is finally in control, God or man. And so God says, okay, you guys, you think you're so smart. You are going to create chaos to the point where nobody's going to be in control except me. And then you'll understand, I'm in control. So here's the prophetic writer listening to this conference, seeing this obnoxious confrontation, and they put this little clause in there, for it was of the Lord, that he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah the Shinite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So here we are. The Lord is establishing his word. He's bringing it to pass. What, therefore, in the middle of this, do you know? What, what, how would you characterize the mentality of the prophets? These are the guys that had to minister the Word of God in this mess. For 200 years, they would walk around that country from one mess to another. From one mess of suffering to hunger to drought to everything else. But why could they have hope? What was their hope in the middle? What what made these people so tough that they could stand up to all the suffering that was going on around them? The Lord shall establish his word. See, God is sovereign, God is omnipotent. And as you read this this passage of history, always look as you read down through the text, these little jewels that appear in the text, just to remind us who is in ultimate control. And then the the great break comes in verse sixteen in poetic form. This is the official rejection of the Davidic dynasty's authority over the north. This is the date of the rupture. And here, at this point, we have the two men face off. We have the northern kingdom under Jeroboam and the southern kingdom under Rahab. And the the issue in verse 16 is the authority of the house of David. Shall the Davidic dynasty reign or shall it not? And the rebellion is on that. So we've entitled this section, The Rejection of the Davidic Covenant. That's the first rejection. We're going to see in subsequent Thursdays there are other rejections, ever so more profound, ever more widespread, ever more anti-God as we go through this period. You'll notice another warning. King Rehoboam, who was over the forced labor, always has stoned him to death. So now we've had murder. We've had an uh, official of the government, verse 18, killed. So now violence, official violence on the part of the north has taken place. It's an act of war. So in verse 21, Rehoboam responds. He mobilizes the army. Verse 22, another jewel. See how the prophetic analyst lace history? What do you read in verse 22? The word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and say, Thus saith the Lord, You must not go up and fight against your relatives, return every man to his house, for this thing has come from me. You see? Who is in control of history? So what we want to notice in all this, sum it up, is we go back to the God of Israel. Biblical history does not end with naming an event. It doesn't end with dating something. Biblical history is the revelation of God's faithfulness. That's what these prophets are all about. And we're going to see that again and again and again. God is sovereign... God is holy, God is omniscient, God is omnipotent, God is omnipresent, God is immutable, God is eternal, and, of course, God is love. These attributes are going to shine again and again and again through the text of Scripture. So, this is the way history should be learned. If we had taught history this way, people would be interested in learning history because there's a reason now to learn it. I have to encounter the God of history. I have to, in my daily Christian walk, I have to trust the Lord for this detail. I have to trust the Lord for this detail. Well, it sure helps if I can, in my mind's eye, go back in time and think look, in this chaos, this cauldron of thousands of people's lives torn up in chaos, who was working his will through it all? God was. And then reason from that massive picture of God and His sovereignty and His omnipotence down to my little problem. It brackets our problems. And this is where you get spiritual power by just simply sitting there almost passive to this grand history. And letting it soak in. And realize who God is and how He works. And this this plays an important role. Okay, and verse 24 ends the whole story. They listened to the word of the Lord, returned and went their way according to the word of the Lord. So peace temporarily happened between uh, the, the, the the north and the south here. What you want to look at for next week is we're going to start studying what happened north of that line. So... We're not going to concentrate so much on Judah. We'll get back to Judah a little bit later. But what we want to do is we want to study what did Jeroboam do up here? What did these people do? Now they had defeated, or at least had rebelled successfully against the authority of the throne. There's Jerusalem. There's their southern boundary. Now how are they going to live this way? They've created a new nation, basically as a result of this rupture. Just like if the United States in 1865 had split. And we had a north and we had a south. Now, what would, what would these two parts formerly call the United States? Now we have the divided states. What would these two countries do? Well, that's the study of, of what's coming. So, next week, if you'll study on, read on, particularly in chapter the end of chapter 12, verses 25 through 33, is extremely critical, critical passage of Scripture. And chapter 13, uh, if you look at it, tells a story that doesn't appear to be related to this thing at all. If you want a challenge, read the story in chapter 13 that looks totally out to lunch and see if you can't understand why. If you were a prophetic writer, would you have bothered to put chapter 13 in this? What has 13 got to do with the revolt? It does. Obviously, the Holy Spirit put it in here. But you have to do some thinking to put on, screw on your thinking cap and think, why is 13 there? What's it doing? Father, we thank you for our time tonight. and We thank you that this has been such a demonstration of your sovereign control of history. And that you don't fool around. And when you tell us there's going to be blessings and there's cursings, you mean there's going to be blessings and cursings. And if we obey the Scriptures, and if we trust you, we'll be blessed. And we try our gimmicks, our solutions, and try to control all the cards, it falls apart. And you will see, deliberately and emphatically, that it does fall apart, and that we are thwarted in our arrogant attempt to assume your position. Father, teach us this lesson that we might not drift again and again into this dangerous area of carnality. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.